Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, what new numbers on hospitality say about the state's industry and Gabby Moreno on charting a bilingual music career. But first, it is time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. Frankly, what Cochise County did is not lawful. Its delegation of uh, election duties to the recorder was way over the line and far too broad and way beyond what has ever happened in the past. For these allegations and and to be so disruptive and to make a mockery of this institution, absolutely discipline was in order. To compare Tucson and Phoenix to a Casa Grande or a Florence or what have you uh, that I represent, they're not even in the same stratosphere. And there does have to be some wiggle room in state law to recognize that they're not the same. They're using curriculum and uh, to teach a lesson. I'm not going to question what they're doing. I- I'm sorry if parents were offended by that, but I don't think that is, this isn't a necessary bill. The bill sponsor couldn't cite any specific examples. We've heard from a number of parents out there that are very concerned with some of what some of the assignments their kids are coming home with. So I don't think it's a, a made-up issue. I'm all in favor of teaching about the horrors of of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and what happened in Oklahoma and so on. That's not what this is about. This is about dividing students by race, telling that race is primary. Joining me to talk about A.G. Chris Mays suing Cochise County, Governor Hobbs vetoing a bill on critical race theory and more, our Marcus Delartino of First Strategic. Hey, Marcus. Good morning. And former state lawmaker and gubernatorial candidate Aaron Lieberman. Aaron, good morning to you. Good to be back. So, Marcus, Chris yes. Mays going after Cochise County after we've talked on this show about their decision to basically consolidate elections with the recorder David Stevens, who has some interesting views on how elections ought to be run. This can't have been much of a surprise, right? The attorney general's office basically said to Cochise County, if you think that this is legal, show us where in the law it says it is. Yeah, I think you'd have to be blind not to see this right hook coming. Um, You know, and the tough part about this, I mean, there is some precedent here, right? Maricopa County turned over their sort of election services to the recorder under an elections director. Um, And so I think from that standpoint, this one's going to be a little bit more nuanced uh, with that lawsuit, uh, that there was too much control sort of turned over uh, at that point. Um, But two, I also think, you know, sometimes in investigations and lawsuits, it's not the initial violation that ends up getting you at the end of the day. I think there's going to be some other things that sort of come through, mainly uh, um, the open meeting law sort of violations I know that they're looking at. And that at the end of the day could cause them some problems. Uh, But it's also, you know, this one's a big deal in that David Stevens has has been tied to Mark Fincham, former Secretary of State. Um, candidate. Candidate, sorry, candidate, um, and and works for his organization, um, and, and which is uh, focused around uh, redoing how we vote. And so I think that's going to why it's sort of a red flag or higher priority, if you will. Aaron, do you think that this would be generating the controversy that it has and, and the response from the AG if – David Stevens 
if it was not David Stevens as the recorder or if David Stevens wasn't aligned so closely, for example, with Mark Fincham? Look, I, I think the AG is looking at the law, which is what we want the attorney general to do, or kind of a refreshing new perspective in that office. But the, the reality is, um, you know, are we in a state of laws or not? Like the laws really pretty clearly say what you can, you know, give to others and what you can't. And you can't give absolutely everything to one person who's not elected, who isn't accountable to the voters and everything else. And the, um, you know, you, the, the supervisors have to hold on to that responsibility. But I just get back to, you know, I, I, I liked it when we're focused on kind of law and regular order. This is disorder and chaos. And we need to get back to actually, you know, letting people vote and having ideas that people want to vote for, as opposed to fighting along these crazy personalities. Is there a, a danger here, Aaron, that by filing this lawsuit and making a case out of this, that it sort of I don't want to say raises the profile of the supervisors and and recorder Stevens, but it kind of like at least within their circles, it gives them something to fundraise off of. It gives them the opportunity to say, look, the state's coming after us for, you know, for what we're trying to do on election integrity. Yeah, I'm not sure what the campaign budget is for a Cochise County supervisor race, but my my guess is it's pretty small. I think this is part of the bind that we're in is that, you know, with small groups that decide primary elections in counties that lean one way, um, you're getting this type of crazy again and again. But the reality is it just gets back to the laws. You know, we got to enforce the laws that were passed by the legislature and signed by some governor previously. That's the job of the AG. And that's what Attorney General Mays is doing here. Marcus, any any concern this sort of elevates some of the issues and maybe makes David Stevens more likely, for example, to not use machines in an election to try to go over the hand count or something? I don't think that there's any doubt that this is going to raise the profile of Cochise County supervisors um, and certainly the recorder. You know, it all this stuff is... It, I think we think that we're living in a vacuum sometimes and, and that only Arizonans care about it or Cochise County. But that's not what's happening anymore. Um, this becomes national news and you get a national following and you get people who you know are sitting on their couch in Michigan drinking a 12-pack of beer, start picking up the phone and calling the board offices or, or the recorder's office or and, and screaming profanities and whatever. So you know we have to start recognizing that those things have effect – a uh, lot bigger than I think we initially think. All right. So eventually, guys, we'll be able to stop talking about specifically elections. But that time is not quite yet. Um, this week, uh, House Democrats filed an ethics complaint. Specifically, one uh, representative filed an ethics complaint against Representative Liz Harris. They called for her censure. That did not happen. Uh, this is over, of course, that uh, – now infamous uh, elections committee hearing from a couple weeks ago when a presenter that Harris brought to that committee, I don't know if it was insinuated, you kind of just said that a number of state election, the state officials, including the governor, including some Republicans, were uh, on the take with uh, drug cartels from Mexico over election issues. Aaron, you've serving in the legislature. Like, do you get the sense this this ethics thing is going to go anywhere? I, I I hope so, honestly. I mean, this is the crazy caucus part two. And if you get elected in the, you know, the state of Arizona, your legislators down there, you have a duty. You have a duty when you're holding a public hearing to, to actually make sure that um, what's being talked about has some modicum of truth. It's a little bit like the Fincham case. You got to, you know, at least have some reason to believe somebody is presenting something in good faith. This stuff is just absolutely nuts. And, uh, Honestly, it's it, it it makes absolutely no sense. And on some level, there's got to be some accountability, or there's going to be more of it. And and that's what I think is really at stake here, because there's a lot of other people down there now who think a little bit like Liz Harris does, and they're looking to see what what happens when you cross that line. And if there's no uh, response, if there's nothing to hold her accountable for what she did, we're going to see even more of that, and that's not good for the state. 
Well, I think the real question for Aaron is, as a former member, are you a little bummed out you didn't stay in it to get some Sinaloa money? I'm really, really not sorry <laughs> on this issue that I was not in currently involved in the legislation. So here's, I would, uh, here's what happened, folks, is that, that you know, a censure motion was uh, filed by the Democrats on the floor and the Republicans brought up the fact that it hadn't been through an ethics committee um, and you need an ethics complaint to do that. And now we're at that process. The Democrats have filed um, the, the ethics complaint. Um, and I think that there is a, I don't think we've heard the last of this is uh, the best way I can put it. I think this is not one, going to be one of those cases where the ethics committee immediately comes out and says there's no grounds. Um, and I, I think that this may become a bigger story in the next couple of weeks. If you are Speaker Bentoma, if you're a member of Republican leadership, you have a one vote majority in the in the House, the Senate as well, but we're talking about the House. Can, is there a danger of alienating Liz Harris? Is there a danger of alienating folks who who agree with her? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am the first one to say the worst job you can have in Arizona right now is Speaker of the House. Hmm. I mean, it's it's a hard gig, uh, no doubt about it. I Yes, there is absolutely a risk to that and you alienate about 14 um, and that very well may happen. Uh, and so the, the session is going to get a lot more tumultuous, uh, if you will, before it gets any better. And that's but, saying something, right? Well, I was just going to say, let, let, let's not forget that Liz Harris is the woman who, upon getting elected to the legislature, made a vow to her constituents that she would not vote for any bill until they had redone the previous election, which, by the way, she was one in. I mean, this is, this is the type of kind of mental gymnastics some of these people are doing. I personally was very disappointed that she violated that sacred oath that she had made. Um, <laughs> but it, it just gets to, you know, you're, you're hurting crazy cats at this point, And that's not easy. Yeah. I mean, what does this potentially, like, could this have an effect on, on non, like, election stuff? Like, could it have an effect on legislation, for example, if, if there's an ethics committee hearing, if there's even a vote for censure for Representative Harris, or if she is censured, does that impact does that impact bills going through if she's ticked off, if other members are ticked off by it? Well, we saw this last week when the Democrats said, hey, we're done voting for any bill, basically, and you got to hold your 31 together if you're going to get anything through the House. And a lot of stuff ground to a halt. And the reality is that just about anything that gets through with 31 votes and no Dem support is going to be vetoed by the governor. And that's the honestly the the good situation we're in right now is with divided government, there's got to be some negotiation for things to happen. And we haven't been there for the last decade. I think that's why we've seen some of the more extreme stuff happen. But that's where we're at right now. And it's going to be a process for people to kind of figure that out. I think Governor Hobbs is up to 16 vetoes. My over under on that is probably 50, which I think is Napolitano's record. Um, but eventually, when if something's going to happen, it's going to have to have Democrats and Republicans behind it. And that is good for the state. Is that, is that a challenge for a bet? I feel like we can throw down some <laughs> cash on the over-under. For entertainment I'm, I'm gonna, purposes you're only. You're taking the under? I'm taking the over. Oh, OK. Uh, Entertain no, 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 entertainment purposes only here, folks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean the fact of the matter is regardless of Liz Harris, every single Republican vote is needed at 31, right? So right. anybody for any reason whatsoever can, can hold up a bill or hold up the budget. Um, and I think that they're all figuring that out for whatever their project is, whatever they would like to get in their district. Naturally, they're saying, you know, I'm not going to vote for X if I don't get Y. Um, and that's that's politics. But back to your sort of your original point is – you know, every move that's made right now is sort of it with the thought of where are we going to be in two years? And when you look at, you know, a one seat majority 
And you look at at least, you know, three seats that I can think of that were very tight. One arguably was a surprise for Republicans, lucky to win down in Yuma. In the House. Yeah. Um, this gets real sensitive real quick. And, and what effects of our actions are going to have on our majority moving forward? But, but Marcus, let's get to that budget question. Is there is there a a one percent chance that the governor would sign a budget that only thirty one Republicans voted for and no Dems? I, I I see that as less than zero. So the idea that you just need thirty one Republicans to pass a budget is I mean I, we, they did that once and it got vetoed already. They're gonna need Dem support to have a budget that the governor will sign. That means they're gonna lose some Republicans, and in the end, this will come down to a coalition of the willing of the the grown ups in the room who are willing to say, okay, what's good for the state and what can we do here? Don't you think? I'm curious. You're well, it's happened before. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We've already seen that sort of happen. Just last Certainly year. Just last year. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I'd love to take that bet too, but because uh, <laughs> it's like free money. Uh, but yeah, I think that's going to absolutely happen. Um, and you're going to have a good sized coalition of Republicans who fall off the budget. There is no doubt about it. But I, I do have some concern. You know, folks need to realize our budget needs to be done by June 30th at midnight. I a little curious at this point of whether we're going to make it or twelve oh two, twelve oh three, right? It could be well, a little bit after. The clock has been it's been turned off to be before. Played with yeah. late in the it was evening. kind of like Vegas those those years. They turned no clocks, closed the windows. Nobody could see what time it was outside. That that may or may not be true. I can't. <laughs> I cannot confirm nor deny. That is Marcus Delartino. I'm also joined by Aaron Lieberman. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. The Friday newscap continues in just a minute. Good morning. It's the Friday Newscap on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. My guest today, former state lawmaker and gubernatorial candidate Aaron Lieberman and Marcus Delartino of First Strategic. Guys, let's talk about a bill that uh, Governor Hobbs vetoed uh, just yesterday. Aaron Marcus talked about having to, you know, not being a shock that, for example, AG Chris Mays sued Cochise County. Governor Hobbs vetoing a bill on what some are calling critical race theory, probably not much of a surprise either, right? Uh, absolutely not. And this is a, another good example of where it's good we have some divided government. You know, this has been, you know, down at the legislature now for about three different sessions. Every single time when it first came up, I brought this up on the floor. Single example. Is there one example of this actually being an issue? Uh, no one's ever been able to provide one for me. The, the worst part about this is people are like, well, parents should be involved in helping select our curriculum. Good news, Arizona. That's exactly how it happens. Every single – first of all, parents and voters elect school boards. Almost every single district has the school boards have a committee, which includes parents, to really look closely at every single thing that, that, that teachers teach. And, you know, that's how the process works and that's how things get approved. If people want to have a say in that, sign up for that committee, spend the time to do it the right way. The bill that got vetoed was just another effort literally to criminalize teachers. I mean, it's bad enough we pay them so little. On top of that, to, to $5,000 fines because I don't like what you taught, it just makes no sense. And I'm so glad the governor vetoed it. Marcus, I can't imagine you were surprised she did not sign this, right? <laughs> Less than shocked. <laughs> um, and I, if I remember right, it was sort of in record time. I mean, this wasn't one that we sort of sat on the sidelines and debated for a while. So I, and Republicans knew that. Um, and, you know, from a Republican perspective, there are things that we have presented time and time again that are preemptive to, to Aaron's point that there's no 
current cases of that happening or nobody can prove it. There are there are certainly cases where we've done preemptive legislation to to stave off something like that from happening. This, um, but there is also you know sort of an art to politics here. Certainly, I think every Republican knew that the governor was going to veto this, and so from a certain aspect, this is a campaign sort of message uh, to put you know from a Republican perspective to be able to say to parents, look, the governor uh, vetoed this bill. Uh, and so there's a, more than a few cases of that happening this year. And I think we're going to see a, a large amount of those in the next four years uh, moving forward. When we heard from Speaker Toma and President Peterson before the session basically say, look, we're going to have to send the governor some bills. We know she's going to veto them, but they're important to our members. They're important to our voters. Even if she vetoes them, even if they have no chance, we have to send them just to show our voters we're doing it. It seems like this would fall into that category. I, there's no doubt about it. Um, I, th I think that's exactly what what happened. I had one uh, one senior legislator who's no longer down there. He used to say to me, take me aside and say often, you know what this is? W-O-T, waste of time. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened on this thing was a big W-O-T for you know everybody involved because we all knew what was going to happen right from the start. So even though this bill was vetoed, we heard from Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn late this week that he's setting up basically a hotline for folks to complain about stuff or, or report on, you know, if, if their kid is hearing or learning something inappropriate in schools. Aaron, what kind of like what kind of calls do you think that line's going to get? Uh, I, I would anticipate it would be just like the previous hotline or whatever it was that got shut down in about thirty days later because so many crazy people were calling in with stuff that had no basis. And you know, I, again, no one no one should feel bad about their race or identity because of something they're being taught in school. Let's be absolutely clear about that. No one should ever be taught anything close to that, you know, one race is inherently bad or one race is inherently good. Again, I think the good news is no one's being taught those things. But, you know, the superintendent, he won his Republican primary by putting stop critical race theory literally on his signs. For him, that was the single defining issue. If you listen to him, he actually has a more nuanced presentation of it than you hear from most other uh, uh, Republican politicians and leaders that I've heard. But it just gets back to the great to, to the same thing of making hay on an issue that's important to a small slice of primary voters, as opposed to getting at the much bigger issues of, of what's actually happening in our schools. Yeah, Mark, is, was this more of a following through on a campaign pledge? I mean, do you get the sense that there might be some real serious cases that need to be investigated and dealt with coming out of this? I think... Um well, a couple things. One is like there there are circumstances where this is happening in other states. And I think that, again, this is a preemptive measure to say, hey, that's not the kind of system that we want in Arizona. Uh, number one, I agree with Aaron's comments on, uh, look, I don't want that sort of teaching going on with my kids either. But uh, here's the problem. And it sort of goes back to what our first topic was, is that we have to remember we're not in a bubble in Arizona anymore. So you set up a 1-800 hotline. That's going national. It's not just for Arizona residents. Mm. And I'm going to tell you, if you just think to yourself, if I took 3% of the U.S. population and told them to call this phone number, what would that do to that system? It's going, it's going to break that phone line. Um, there's no doubt about it. And the, the fact of the matter is there is not enough investigators. There's not enough people over a DOE to be able to track all these cases down because a good – a huge percentage of these are going to be, well, I heard it on the internet or I read it somewhere or a neighbor told me. Um, and so I, I don't know functionally how this is going to sort of pan out. But by the way, one other thing on this bill, you, you know who could still teach all the critical race theory they wanted even if this bill were you know miraculously signed? Um, that would be all of the – 
kids who are being funded by Arizona vouchers and ESAs in private schools that were not applied to this at all. And, you know, it's it's another kind of rules for thee but not for me here where if we're now sending hundreds of millions of dollars, which is the current situation of ESA voucher money to fund kids to go to private schools, is it okay that that taxpayer money is being used to teach critical race theory? Again, there's some core inconsistencies here that just don't make any sense to me. Guys, let me ask you about another uh, – a pair of, of measures that went through the state senate this week, one dealing with basically getting rid of charter cities. Um, the other would uh, ask voters to uh, have Tucson's election system changed. Tucson has kind of an unusual system uh, for city elections in terms of wards and then people running uh, at large. Marcus, this was one that a couple of Republicans, uh, T.J. Shope and Ken Bennett, voted against the the home rule, the charter cities bill. Uh, when it first went through, the bill was then amended. The measure was then amended to take out their cities, Prescott and Casa Grande, which have charters. We heard from Senator Shope in the montage at the top saying, look, there's a difference between Phoenix and Tucson and Casa Grande. They're just different, different types of cities, which is undeniably true. But is it like, is it right for the state to try to take away these charters? The, well, both bills are uh, have to do with what I affectionately call the People's Republic of Tucson. Um, <laughs> and so there is a long history of Tucson uh, doing things differently that sort of cause problems down at the state legislature. I think if you asked a lobbyist for the League of Cities and Towns, they would tell you that they've spent 90 percent of their time working on issues that relate to Tucson and fixing problems that uh, where the solution is to apply it statewide. So uh, – you know, I here's a this is another one, and I think everybody loses perspective. Is the is Governor Hobbs going to sign this bill? Yeah, well, this course. one doesn't have to go to. This one goes right to the voters. Oh, SCR. Good point. Good point. Um, and so I I don't think you know I for the folks that are living in Phoenix, for the folks that are living in Mesa, Chandler, Glendale, um, these types of bills caused them problems, but they weren't the problem child in the first in the first place. I. It's hard to say at the end of the day whether it sort of makes the makes the finish line. I think at some point somebody's going to say, well, let's think about this a little bit harder. What do you think, Aaron? I mean just hmm, what's different between Coolidge and Prescott and Tucson? Oh, the party of the mayor who's leading those cities. And again, this just gets to, you know, you hear a lot of support for local control and local, you know, home rule and all of those things until it's the other party that's in control of those the, those cities or those towns. And that's that's just what this is about. Um, you know, all of these things are enshrined in our state constitution around charter cities. It, 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 I just get back to if you want to change what's happening in cities, run candidates from your party who can get elected in those cities. That's how our system should work. Instead of crying down to the Capitol to try to get the rules changed so that the body you do control can make rules for them. But one last thing in sending stuff to the voters, this is a dangerous game. I mean, we know this. It, it is nearly impossible to change anything you send to the voters. And But What's really going to happen, because they're doing this now that that we have a Democratic governor, when you get a really long list of things on that ballot, a lot of people are just going to vote no on everything. And then when you really need something that gets approved that's a really big problem, you're not going to be able to get it. So they're playing with fire with all of these SCRs. I hope they uh, end up not making it through the House and don't get all of the way there. But this is just an attempt to say, um, you know, our big issue here is that it's not our control and we don't really care about local control. Aaron, would you agree with Marcus's assessment on the, the charter cities measure that at some point someone's going to say, yeah, I don't think so. 
I, I would I would hope so. Again, you kind of see how the sausage gets made there, where it's, you know, you have to cut out the two people who have the objection to kind of get their vote on that. And there's uh, there's just a strange dynamic down there where there's a lot of pressure. Um, this one is scary because it, it will would end up straight on the ballot with voters with just, again, a narrow majority in the Capitol. And um, I, I don't ultimately I don't think that's going to be good for the state. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Aaron Lieberman. Also, Marcus Delartino here. Thank you guys both uh, for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to be here. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, recording artist Gabby Moreno singing ranges from Guatemalan boleros to gritty roadhouse blues. She'll be performing in Chandler with Los Lobos. And coming up, she joins the show. But first, a national hospitality trade group expects tax revenue generated from hotels to hit new highs this year. The American Hotel and Lodging Association also finds hotel occupancies to be near pre-pandemic levels. The group predicts Arizona to see a 15 percent increase in tax revenue from 2019. That's higher than the national average. But staffing will likely continue to be a problem for hotels nationwide. Arizona is expected to have nearly 12 percent fewer employees this year than in 2019. That is also slightly higher than the national average. With me to break down the data for the state is Kathleen Anderek, a professor in the School of Community Resources and Development at ASU. And Kathleen, what stands out to you about these numbers? I think some of the things were interesting. I think in general, what just keeps being brought home to me when we look at numbers for Arizona and and other places is how, you know, people's travel behavior has changed um, all essentially due to the pandemic and how that may be permanent. I I think in Arizona, we're fortunate um, that we do have a substantial leisure travel sector, a lot of resources for leisure travelers, because, you know, that's one of the things that that this report was was highlighting is some kinds of business travel is really going down. And it's those destinations that also have leisure resources that will bring people in to visit. It's interesting because reading through the report that is that came along with the numbers, I came across a, a new phrase that I assume you are familiar with called leisure, which is sort of a combination of business and leisure travel. It sounds like what you're saying is while there will probably continue to be a, a drop in, in the amount of, of business travel, the fact that the Phoenix area, the fact that Arizona can have other stuff to do still has a leisure uh, a leisure sector here is probably more helpful than maybe some other markets. Yeah, I think that's true. And and interestingly, I, I hadn't seen leisure used before, but I have hmm. seen another term um, that's along the same line, which is a workation, right? Where people are working and taking a vacation at the same time. And again, this really all came about because of the pandemic and people becoming more mobile, um, using mobile technologies to work at the same time and just becoming accustomed to that. And I think, you know, I think that's a permanent change, too. I think many of us will continue to do a fair amount of our work from home or potentially from, you know, other locations that uh, that can be leisure destinations as well. This is something that's changed all of us and has changed tourism. And I'm not really sure we know what's going to happen yet. A lot of this is just going to be wait and sort of see 
what happens with people's behavior and how their travel changes and, you know, how their their business lives change and, you know, a lot know a lot more in a couple of years. But right now there's just a substantial amount of uncertainty about, you know, what all is going to happen now in in the world of tourism. What do you make of some of the numbers that came out about Arizona in terms of uh, employment, in terms of uh, tax revenue generated from hotel stays? Like, did that kind of fall in line with with what you would imagine them to be at this point? Yeah, I think so. I think we are um, getting back to the point, you know, where we're we're kind of re-entering that trajectory for growth and tourism that we were seeing in 2019 was, you know, one of the biggest years ever, maybe the biggest year ever for travel. And now we're getting to the point where we're kind of re-entering that trajectory that the world was on um, in in continuing to see increases in travel. So, yeah, I think it was was something I would have expected to see. Um, I do think here, among other places, you know, the workforce issue is going to continue to be a problem, but I, I did uh, kind of read with interest the the speculation on the part of you know in the report that that a lot of hotels may be going toward more AI applications to help solve the workforce problem by you know using robots and you know other kinds of of technology where they don't need as many staff members. Yeah. So you talked about the labor shortage, and I wonder if, you know, the fact that a lot of hotels in Arizona and, you know, around the country as well are really struggling to to staff up, is that in some way, do you think, like a market correction, or is it really just sort of a sign of where we are right now? I think it, it, it probably is more than a sign of where we are right now. I, I think this is, again, one of these unanticipated results that have come about from the pandemic. Um, People don't always treat employees very well. And I think a lot of employees are kind of done with that and, you know, are moving on to work in other, in other sectors as opposed to, you know, hospitality or tourism. So I'm not sure this is something that um, is going to change anytime soon. And we're a little bit fortunate here in the valley in that we have an increasing population. I can't really imagine, you know, what places that don't have that are, are trying to do for, for labor shortages because not every place is, is, is still in a growth mode like we are. So that's a little bit helpful, but, but I do think that employers are going to have to find other solutions to this employment problem, because I I don't know that it's going away anytime soon. Right. Do you think that going forward, leisure and hospitality will continue to be as big a part of of the regions and the state's economy as it traditionally has been? I think it will. Um, With that one exception, we may see somewhat lower employment numbers. But I do think it's still going to be a major major aspect of our economy here and in lots of places you know, in the state, you know, we see a lot of places in the world that uh, as their population moves more into the middle class, you know, they're just traveling that much more. And that's where a lot of the increases in travel are coming from is those countries that have seen increases in their population socioeconomic status. 
And once a lot of these things, um, you know, visitation of people moving around stabilizes a little bit more um, from, you know, from the pandemic effects, I, I think we'll see that growth continue and still see tourism as a pretty major aspect of our economy here in Arizona. All right. That is Kathleen Anderag from the School of Community Resources and Development at ASU. Thanks, as always, for your insights. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Gabby Moreno is one of those rare stories of people who grew up with a dream and then lived it. She grew up in Guatemala dreaming of coming to the U.S. to pursue a career in music. And at age 18, she moved to Los Angeles with a record deal and a spot at music school. Since, she's won a Latin Grammy, been nominated for a Grammy and an Emmy, and shared the stage with everyone from Bono and Buena Vista Social Club to Ani DeFranco and Calexico. She writes and performs in both in English and Spanish and is truly a genre-bending artist, pulling influences from bolero to blues, soul, and funk. She's coming to the Valley this weekend on tour with Los Lobos at the Chandler Center for the Arts, and my co-host Lauren Gilger got the chance to talk with her ahead of the show. Where I started singing, I remember being nine years old and getting on stage and singing in front of a lot of people because my my parents were in the in the industry there. My father was a promoter. He would bring um, artists from out of town to do concerts in Guatemala. And my mother uh, has always been in radio and television. So they were very, very supportive. I remember um, when they sort of discovered that I could sing, hmm. they were like, oh my gosh, we have to like <laughs> get, you know, find opportunities for you to, to get on stage. And, and I asked for it. I really wanted it. And I just remember singing everywhere I could, hmm. whether it was opening for Ricky Martin when I was 10 years old <laughs> to, to doing festivals, but, but always knowing that I was going to finish my studies, you know, finish, finish high school in Guatemala and then find opportunities outside of the country. Cause I knew I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to stay in Guatemala. I, I knew that I had to, I had to leave at some point, especially because I, I, I was really in love with um, blues and jazz music. Talk about that influence, right? That blues influence and that jazz influence that you clearly yeah. have in your music, but you know, doesn't clearly come from where you grew up in Guatemala. There's no, a story right. you've yeah. told about going to New York as a teen and like mm -hmm. and being exposed to this for the first time. Can you tell us what happened? My parents took me on a, just a vacation trip with with my sister, 
And I remember we we went to see some musicals. That, that's what I was really into at the time. And after seeing one of the musicals, we were, we were just walking down the street on Times Square. And I heard this woman singing what in my head was, it just sounded so foreign, mm. but it was so passionate and, and so incredibly beautiful. I, I stayed for like 20 minutes listening to her. And after she was done, then I went up to her and I asked her what, what that music was that she was singing and she said oh that's the blues honey and and that that was my introduction to it i i said i told my mom can you please take me to a to a record store i want to go and and buy all the all the blues albums i can find and i i brought them home with me to guatemala and i would lock myself in my room and just listen to all these incredible songs you know I, i i basically discovered all this music on my own and from blues, then of course I, I got into jazz and, and soul music and R and B and funk and all of that good stuff that comes from here from yeah. the states. And that's why I was always thinking, oh, I have to I have to find a way to to, to leave and, and absorb this music here in the U.S. Tell us about that immigration story. Right, you came to the U.S. a long time ago now to L.A. <laughs> what was that yeah. like? Well, it was exciting, truly, for me because it was this. It was something that I was dreaming of since I was a kid. So imagine finally getting to, to come here and, and, and living that dream. Um, I went to a music school, so I, I came as a, as a student and I was also signed by a label. So I, I was kind of really <laughs> living the dream at 18 years old. And I just remember also after about a year missing my family a lot because I, I, I moved here on my own. Mm. I didn't have anybody with me. Till this day, you know, now I've been here for 22 years and I, I'm still here on my own. So yeah. that's something that's that's always very difficult and was definitely just something that, you know, made me nostalgic and made me miss my, not just my family, but where I come from and my roots and everything. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that after a few years of being in the States, that's what made me want to explore more of that in my music what it means to be an immigrant and where I come from and, um, and also celebrate that. Cause I, I, I also think it's a beautiful thing to have this uh, diversity here in the States. That's really interesting. So it was sort of later in your career, more recently in your career, I should say mm-hmm. that those influences <laughs> of where you grew up and where you came from and being an immigrant really started to, to take hold. Give us a few yeah. examples. Like how did that manifest itself in your music? Yeah, well, I was, writing and and recording exclusively in english when i when i first got to the states mm-hmm. like i said because I, that's the music that i loved and i and for some reason i thought it didn't sound authentic enough to me to sing it in spanish right so mm-hmm. i was like no there's there's no blues in spanish like what is that <laughs> <laughs> and boy was i wrong uh after about six seven years i I remember I was doing these shows with a friend of mine and it was, it was a residency in this little club in LA called Largo. And he said to me, Hey, can you bring some songs from, uh, you know, from where you grew up or, or any, any songs that are from Latin America? And I said, okay, I'll, I'll bring some boleros, you know, mm-hmm. and I had never done any of these songs. And I remember I, I, uh, I sang this song called Amapola and another song called Quizás Quizás, which, by the way, I still sing. They're, they're now still part of my repertoire to this day. But back then, it was something new to me. It was just music that I knew that my parents listened to. My grandmother used, used to sing to me when I was mm. a kid. I didn't really like fully appreciate it as much, right? Yeah. So I brought this music, and 
and uh, and I remember um, singing it and kind of finding my own voice with it, right? Mm. Trying to like make it make it my own, and uh, just just the way that people received it was was amazing. They they came up to me afterwards and they were like, "Oh my God, this is so so incredibly special." You know, you should definitely be doing more music like this or or incorporate more more of these songs in your sets. And I was mm. like, "Yeah, actually, I really like that." So. <laughs> So that's what I did. I, rem- I remember from then on, um, on my first album, actually, uh, my first album is called Still the Unknown. And I, I recorded the song Amapola. Y amor en los hierros de tu reja Y amor Escuché la triste queja Y amor Que solo en mi corazón Diciéndome así Con su dulce canción pola Lindísima Amapola Será siempre mía every album i tried to always put some some songs in spanish and you know whether it was boleros or like covers that meant a lot to me Hmm. or i actually started writing songs in spanish with you know a a blues feel or a jazzy feel i just realized that that's something unique and special about me that that i could keep doing it is um I wanted to ask you a little bit about the melding of genres that you do in your music. And it seems like this is very much a part of your your story, right? Like your evolution as an artist and where you come from and the music that you love and mixing it all together. But what's it been like to try to navigate the music industry, like this music industry that typically likes to cubbyhole artists into these like very identifiable genres that work on Spotify, mm-hmm. right? Like how do you, yeah, how do you navigate yeah. that? Well, what's what's interesting is that I I lived through this whole this really crazy transition because when when I got here to the states it was in the early two thousands, you know back back in those days you you really had to rely on a major label to put up, put out an album and you had all these people telling you like what you what you could do and what you couldn't do and I remember distinctly people telling me you know, you cannot do English and Spanish at the same time like that's not going to work you're going to confuse people you got either choose whether you want to just sing in English or if you want to do Spanish, cool, but then, you know, just do that and, yeah. you know, go, go to Latin America and <laughs> <laughs> try, try to do a crossover like J-Lo and Shakira. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not really what I'm trying to do. But yeah, I, I, I remember so well that back, back in those days, it was, it, it was very difficult. Now, oh my God, it's, it's, it's really amazing where I'm at right now because I can really just be myself, be who I am. And, and I, I feel like that's my authenticity, right? That's my essence. I, I, I feel so incredibly comfortable singing in both languages because I, I speak in both languages in this, in this country, right? Yeah. yeah. Freely. So, that's, so I want to reflect that in my music, whether it's singing songs completely in Spanish or even like in Spanglish, right? Like I have songs where I'm singing a verse in Spanish and another verse in English. <laughs> Fuertes escucho el zumbi. 
I am so, so grateful that I can do that now freely <laughs> and not have to like abide by any rules anymore. Yeah. That is Gabby Moreno. Thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck. Thank you. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend. See you back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.